I'm Matt Downing, and welcome to Diving Deep EDU. Curious conversations with all types of peeps. Encouraging innovation, we are diving deep. Certainly education is what we like to speak. Fervent with dedication, now it is time to teach. Yeah. Hey everyone, and thanks for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. This podcast is based in conversations that are willing to go off on a rabbit trail or two in order to find those aha moments, those times when someone is able to say something in a way that brings increased clarity. Now, I'm an educator, so much of our conversations will have that as the end goal. How can the things that we are talking about help us to dive deeper into educational practices? Thanks for tuning in. Our guest is Thomas Murray. Tom is a former elementary teacher, middle school teacher, elementary principal, middle school principal, district admin. He's an author and he currently serves as the director of innovation for Future Ready schools. He has worked alongside the Senate, White House, and the Department of Education. But above all that, he's a husband and a father of two children. Tom, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's an honor to be here. Thanks for having me and joining the show. Great. So I'm going to get things uh, started off with, with a very broad question. We'll get more specific as we go on, I promise. Um, You've spent about 15 years in public education between teaching and administration before moving on and doing the work you're doing now. As you think back over that 15 years, and I know this is a hard question, but as you think back over those 15 years, what are some of your biggest takeaways from your time in public education and your experience? Awesome. Well, thanks, Matt. It's an honor to be here with you today. Thanks for, I appreciate the time and the investment in the conversation, the investment in other people. I appreciate you having me on. So, yeah, I spent uh, the first part of my career in public schools in Pennsylvania. And I will tell you, as I reflect on those and lessons learned, I mean, you ask any educator that hour, uh, that that uh, question, and we could have hours and hours of conversation, right? Yep. If I look at all that work and, you know, in an intro like that, I almost start laughing to myself of elementary teacher, middle teacher, middle principal, elementary principal, district office. Like, I obviously couldn't keep a job, so I went to Washington, D.C., <laughs> right? And it makes total sense now, right? Now, in all seriousness, I look back and and so many lessons learned. First and foremost, without without any hesitation, is the work that we do is about people. Our work is about loving and caring about kids and everything else comes secondary to that. Another lesson learned, and I know when we talk about things like innovation and we talk about things like technology, it's so easy to get caught up in the, you know, the, the apps and the tools and they're all great things, but there's been times in my career where I lost sight of that. And I got so jacked up because going back to like, literally I was one-to-one -one in my classroom 19 years ago, one-to-one palm pilots like you remember those things right <laughs> yeah and so i remember being told that palm pilots were going to change education like i kid you not like somebody told me that and at the time i probably was a little bit even on board with that right and so i can think back and i think about lessons learned and we're talking about innovation and technology i would say we've got to focus on the right stuff 
Mm. Meaning it's so easy to get caught up in the latest app, the latest tool, the latest like must have quote unquote game changer that we lose sight of our purpose and why we're doing what we're doing. And like when we take a look at something like technology, like the reality is we can be 100% digital, 100% online, 100% of devices, 100% of the time and simultaneously 100% low level learning. And sometimes when we take a look at things like social media, that stuff gets glorified like every day. So one of my other lessons with that is keep your priorities straight, keep them in order. Like in reflecting on the whole COVID piece and I'm working with superintendents and principals around the country on like reopening and just working through those pieces. When we look back to when COVID first hit, you know, districts, they, as, as, as everything started closing down, you know, governors started to close things as well, obviously like districts instantly got their priorities in order. Like that first day that everything went remote, it wasn't like I'm worried about that math benchmark assessment and the three homeworks Johnny hasn't done. Like that wasn't the priority. Is it is does this kid have food? Is this child safe? And we think back to like education 101 and Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's so easy in our work to forget our why, forget our purpose, get caught up in the stuff or even get caught up in the things like the testing and the accountability. And listen, I work with about 42 of the 50 state departments, so I get it. I get the the side of things that districts are under, that educators are under from the accountability end. But none of the stuff that I've referenced in the first five or six minutes of this podcast will ever, ever compare or be aligned to or be more important than the children that we serve. At the end of the day, we can never lose sight of that. Yeah, thanks for starting off the episode um, with with that reflection there. Um, one of your admin roles was as a technology director in that large public school district in, in Pennsylvania area. In that role, uh, you launched an online school. And again, this was probably before a lot of online schools were being launched around the country. And I just want to ask you a couple questions about that, see if we can uh, learn a bit sure, from your absolutely. experience. Yeah, um, it's pretty relevant right now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so what what were some, and again, I want thinking back then, because I'm going to ask you uh, more current, but, but thinking back then, uh, what were some of the most essential components when launching that online school? Sure. So we created where I was our own virtual public school in our public school in Pennsylvania. So part of the reason in Pennsylvania is we were losing kids left and right to cyber charter schools where kids would go. We weren't either meeting their needs or they needed a different platform. And in Pennsylvania, you're not the only game in town. Kids can choose to go to a a private cyber charter school that's fully online. You know, when we look at remote learning, we see a lot of districts now scrambling to create such a thing. So this was going back literally 10 years ago. So this is 2010. My superintendent had the vision to say, listen, we're losing kids left and right to cyber charter schools. As a district, it would cost us about $12,000 a year for a regular ed student, $24,000 a year. We'd have to write the check to that school for a, a child because that was the, the student rate, um, the going rate for a student that given year, the, the, alloc- the, um, the, the rates that we would have to pay. And she had the vision to say, well, let's create our own program internally. Let's have our teachers do it. Let's bring those kids back. And it'll pay for itself. And so when we look yep. at lessons learned, number one, part of it is you, gotta, you have to stay focused and be driven on the why. Part of that why to be was mm-hmm. we needed to meet kids' needs differently. When kids are leaving your district, if you don't ask why, that's negligence. It's easy to say like, well, that kid, this kid, that kid, this kid, but we back it up. Well, why are kids leaving? And if kids are leaving because we're not meeting their needs, well, that becomes a problem. I'll tell you, COVID and remote learning right now, 
one of my largest fears nationwide is parents jump instantly to that and start to say, well, I'm just going to jump to a cyber school that's been doing it for 20 years. Why am I going to wait for my district to try and figure it out? And I'll just go over there. And, you know, as a dad of two young kids, like yeah. I can kind of understand why a parent would say that as opposed to, well, maybe they'll be here. Maybe they'll be there. I'm mm -hmm. not choosing that for my own children. But lessons learned, number one, be driven by your why and your purpose. For us, we had mm -hmm. to better meet students' needs. Number two, it was also creating a financial burden for our school district that we had to find a way to close that hole. And we did. Over the three years that I was there, we brought back $200,000 in kids each year uh, with a net wow. savings, about $600,000 in students after the third year, right before I left there. And again, you don't do it just for the financial reasons, but the reality is the pot's only so big when it comes to the money a school district has. And so then it's taking a look at lessons learned and started going back 10 years ago. And certainly a lot of the tools and stuff have really evolved to compare to it was a lot more clunky back then with a lot of the blackboard stuff early on and some of those pieces. But number one is I would say relating to that and kind of the software and that piece is finding ways to build relationships and build culture are even more important and even need to be more intentional when you're creating online environments, because it's, let's face it, it's harder. A lot easier when you're standing in front of 20 or 30 kids and walk over to a student, you know, say something to them real quick. That's very different than an online environment. We have to be really intentional about setting the tone, building the culture, creating those relationships. The second thing is we have to think long and hard about synchronous versus asynchronous. Synchronous yeah. being, of course, we meet at the same time at the same place. Asynchronous is more, here's all things you need to do. You have by this date to do it. You can meet me here for office hours, that kind of thing. Because on one hand, the synchronous piece where I can share student, I can share with students, maybe I have all 25 students on a screen. On one hand, there's a lot of benefit to that because it's like it feels a little bit more, it is more real time where you can have some of those interactions that are live. There's positives to that. One of the pieces, though, that we have to think long and hard about that was on our radar back then is what about kids that can't? And so when we take a look, one of the things I work on nationally has been coined the homework gap. Personally, I despise that it's called that because it's really not about homework, it's about connectivity. Yeah. And it's called that. I work really closely with the FCC. Jessica Rosenwurzel is one of the FCC members who's really leading this charge. She coined the term homework gap. And it's coined that because ultimately that's what Congress understands. And it's Congress that needs to set up to fund it for students throughout mm -hmm. the country. And that's why it's called that. But we, when kids don't have connectivity at home, when their classrooms are at home, we've completely cut off access to learning. And so it's an issue that you've seen front and center in the last number of months, but even going back then, students couldn't have cyber environments as we called them back then, remote environments, um, if they didn't have the access. So we have to make sure that kids have access and opportunity. To me, that's a non-negotiable, and it's also our moral and ethical obligation to do so. You know, when I look big picture at that working nationally, about 12 million of our nation's students do not have internet access at home. But the flip side to that is about 70% of our teachers on average pre-COVID ask kids to do something digital outside of school. If I'm one of those 12 million kids with one of the 70% of teachers asking, what about me? And that puts me in a really, really interesting spot. And so anything that we do online, we have to make sure that kids have access and the opportunity to do what we're actually asking them to do. And we've got to remove our blinders because things that you and I may be accustomed to, the good internet access that you and I have at home, the opportunities yeah. that you and I have at home or the opportunities my own children have, if I don't recognize that there's many children, especially our black and brown children that don't have that, that becomes negligence on our end. And we have the moral and ethical obligation to make sure we close some of those gaps. We could talk for hours and hours and hours on that question, but that's some of the things that come up when we talk about lessons. Let's pause there for a minute and, and delve into that, that equity issue. If you could 
And, I, and I've heard you speak about this on, on a couple of occasions, but if you could speak to a little bit longer about the importance of equity when we're thinking about technology and learning and, in, and innovation, what role does equity play within that? To me, it's front and center, and that's the only option. Yeah. One of the things I see districts doing right now is it's finally – see, COVID put equity front and center for all districts, whether they liked it or not. Kudos to the many districts that have been working to tackle the issues that are out there. And I also want to state equity is far greater than – I have a device and I have connectivity at home. The analogy that I'll often make, it's like buying a car and the connectivity and the device is like a left tire. Like we need that left tire. The, the car doesn't drive well without it. There's a heck of a lot more to a car than there is just the left tire. And quite often when people say equity, they instantly think about the devices and connectivity at home. And that's certainly front and center with, with COVID. But I want to be really clear that you know COVID and, and everything that we've been going through didn't create equity issues it amplified equity issues that already existed. And so when we take a look at, at the example of equity, for me, it's the lens with all decisions that have to be made. Getting to work with thousands and thousands of educators in a given year, and in a traditional year, I'm probably in about 100 school districts, I get to see a lot. And it's real easy to prance anybody from the outside into some gifted or honors classes or AP class and say like, look at us, look how great we are, look how innovative, look how we're doing. Okay, well, show me the across the hall. Show me. Let's look at that class. And who's in that class? Who has access to that class? Who doesn't have access to the class? What's the demographic makeup of that class? Do many of those students look like Tom Murray, and it's not a very diverse class because if it doesn't match the overall population and demographics of our of our, our students, we have to ask why. And so when we take a look there, equity is not some checkbox. Nice to have. I'm done. It is a constant lens in which districts need to make decisions. Everything from hiring practices discipline rates, to the way we set our protocols and our practices and our handbooks and those kinds of things there as well, um, down to things like curricular needs, to our learning spaces. So I'll give you an example. When I think curricular needs, do we evaluate the literature that our kids read? Do we evaluate the read-alouds? Like when I think about even something as simplistic as a read-aloud, a common practice for like every elementary teacher on the planet, well, let's evaluate who are the main characters in those read-alouds? What do they have in common? And the five top read-alouds you read there in fourth grade. What don't they have in common? Or if we read like, who are the main characters? What are their genders? What are the, what's the story about? And we quickly start to see that many of the stories we read are about, you know, this nice male in this two parent home living in the suburbs. And then I go to the next story and it's, oh, well, I have a, I have a black main character here and it just happens to be on sports. And, and I have over mm. here, here's the goody two shoes girl. And if we're not careful and we don't really take a critical lens to that, we can reinforce stereotypes in the examples that I just gave. And we've got to be really, really careful about that because I just gave three stereotypical examples or I think about our learning spaces. You know, we walk into our U.S. history class in 11th grade and every image of success around the classroom is a white male. Well, we've got to be really, really conscious of like, who are we showing as successful? Like, do our females look through our classes and see images of success and what it means to be successful to our students of color? And so when we talk about equity. It can be seen and disparities in equity can be seen in so many different lights that to me, that's a non-negotiable. If, if you don't believe in equity, get the heck out of education. And I have no idea how else to say. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for saying it that way. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, I want to ask a follow up about online school, because I think people are grappling with that right now more more than ever. So so here's the question I want to ask you from your experience. So you today talking to Tom 10 years ago, starting that school, 
what would you advise your former former self in respect to creating an online school? And to say it another way, what what are the best practices? What are the 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 things that that need to remain to have an effective online school? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, you know, there were so many lessons learned, and I started to reflect on those. The program started the year before I got there. I was still a principal that year. One of the things that they learned the hard way is they they started. They tr- it was actually a very similar to scenario to right now. They were trying to build things in a very short time frame, and teachers were trying to create online stuff while simultaneously t- um, teach the kids. And it, it it it's a virtually impossible task because you're asking teachers to do basically two full time jobs to do it well. And they learned that year before I got there that that just doesn't work. And so the first thing, if I'm starting from scratch, got hired tomorrow by a school district yeah. to say, okay go do it. If I were to answer the question that way, first, I'd go back to the question of why, like, what's our purpose? If we're just simply trying to check off a box to meet a need, it's got to be deeper than that. Because my question is, we look at all the remote things that are being built right now, or the equity things that are being in place right now, like your hotspots and stuff like that. When COVID is a, is a memory, and we look all forward to that day, what continues to exist? Do we take the hotspots back from kids? Do we then like we we saw you had that need, but now that we don't have this COVID thing out there, like we're going to remove your access again. Like that's going to be very telling. So it's going back to the why and the purpose. And if our purpose is to have high quality learning experiences and offer it for every child in diverse scenarios and diverse situations and really create this anytime, anywhere learning to create that ultimate flexibility, then we have to look at this as more than I just need to get through a couple months. And so you have to think long term, not just short term. The other piece that I would say, obviously, teaching and learning is front and center in all that we do. It's it's a huge part of our why. It's the it's the academic side. And so with that, it's helping people understand what is high quality teaching and learning online actually look like. What we saw, what I saw year two, my first year in the program, is kind of this natural progression. And I, I certainly don't say this from a negative towards teacher by any means. It's this natural progression to what online experiences look like. And so it would often take like, okay, here's my lesson plan. Here's my PowerPoint slides that I would post. Here's the, the section that I want you to read, answer these questions. That's activity one. That's lesson one. And what you started to realize soon after is online learning is, has to be far more than a series of activities. teaching components. And so, you know, we saw parts of that through COVID. We saw teachers doing things or recording and screen recording. I know my son's kindergarten teacher spent an enormous amount of time teaching her lessons, capturing them, and then making them available for parents, um, a learning coach in that case, to really be able to do it in their time. So they taught the lesson and then created the activities on top of that. And so it's, it's making sure that high quality is always high quality, because I really believe a poor online experience is even worse than a poor in-person experience. Because teaching online, is, it's more challenging. It really, really is in that regard. Things for 30 kids all in one shot sometimes takes us individual messages or whatever the case might be. Other pieces that I would say related to that, I mentioned earlier the idea around building culture and really building relationships. I would spend a lot of time in that early process on how do you build relationships online? How do we create a culture where people want to be in an online or remote environment? The other piece that I would add to that is the idea around we have to never forget that our work is not just about math, reading, and writing. The social emotional side, the trauma side, when we look around the aspects of COVID, one of the things that we have to keep front and center, especially this coming fall, is that student trauma rates are going to be through the roof. I mean, you think about the the 
how many kids have lost a, a relative, lost a friend, lost somebody from their church because of COVID or those kinds of things. And just making sure that we really keep that whole child approach where it's not just check off the box. You've done these assignments, you move to the next course. We've got to make sure that we're far greater than that because it's not just about a content and standards. It's also about the whole child and having good people. And so making sure that the social emotional side of things, the relational side stays front and center and all, all, you know, all that we do with that. Talked about high quality teaching. So I want to, I want to zero in on, uh, you know, some of your expertise and some of your experience in, in respect to high quality technology integration. So, um, you know, this, uh, you know, hits everyone, not just with online school. So, what, from from your perspective, your experience, your opinion, what are some of the most important traits of high quality technology integration? Sure. So I'll actually rephrase the question and say <laughs> almost like, who the heck cares what Tom Murray thinks? What is research, Shay? What does it actually say? Because I realistically, I recognize I'm one lens, you know, and yes, I've got a lot of experience in, in a lot of ways, but I would also say like, I've learned a lot because there's a lot of people that have worked in very different environments than I have. And so when I look and answer that question, you have to look at like, what does effective use of technology look like anyway? And so starting there at that basic level is I would say when we look at that, um, what research shows has not moved the needle is this idea of kind of just digital drill and kill. I take what I've always yeah. done. I put it in Google Docs. I celebrate that I'm doing something different. Like, yay, we're all in Google this. Like at the end of the mm -hmm. day, who the heck cares? Because like, if it's not shifting the pedagogy, we're actually just spending more money. And how yeah. I know that, I mean, just, I mean, seeing it in practice first and center, foremost, but every year I get during budget time in the spring, I get 10 to 12 emails from superintendents around the country that go something like this. Tom, four years ago, we went one-to-one. -one. We spent X amount of dollars. It's time this year to refresh our equipment for this coming year. Coming year, it's going to cost X amount of dollars. Our board is questioning why we're going to spend $1.4 million if in the past four years, our scores have remained flat. Yeah, like we could analyze like, why are they comparing scores? What about test scores? We know we could go down that road. I get it. But what they're really asking is um, if things haven't shifted a whole lot, why are we about to spend $1.4 million again? Yep. Which I would actually say is probably a good question. And so <laughs> when we look at it, we have to look at the question and say, what, how, how do we know that it's actually going to work? So I, I will say in the, the we going back to being a tech director, we implemented one-to-one -one in middle schools and high schools when I was there um, six, year, well, six years ago to, to eight years ago during that time frame. And yeah. in my very last board meeting, and by the way, no, I wasn't canned after the board meeting. That's not why I was my last. <laughs> I was already going to Washington, D.C. Um, it, was the, it was the board meeting where you vote on the budget for the following year, which anybody that's ever been to one of those knows how fun those can be. And the school board president said to me, because we were buying lots of devices for the following year, and said, so Tom, in this forum, as they were going through the budget lines, if we spend this money on devices and we go one-to-one -one next year, will student achievement increase? And so here's the thing. Like, why does that question make people feel uncomfortable? Because if we think about it, like it would if we don't really know what works, because like what if I stood at a public board meeting and was like, I don't know, maybe like fingers crossed. Let's hope it's only one point four million dollars in taxpayer stuff. We think it might yeah. hopefully be it'd be fun. It'd be kind of cool. wouldn't it? <laughs> right? Like and, like no business in the world would operate like that ever. 
yet sometimes in schools, it's kind of what we do, right? And so yeah. when we look at those pieces, we have to know what really works. And so from yeah. a, a research end or an evidence end, it comes down to these things. Number one, it's leveraging technology to explore leveraging technology to design, leveraging technology to create. And so those three pieces are really core to those things about what effective use of ed tech is. The other thing I would say is yes, technology can certainly make things more efficient at times and efficiency can buy us time, but efficiency doesn't mean deeper level. We'll use a lot of apps, use a lot of tools to gain time. If I'm doing a feedback to, to kids, I can get I can send, I can take one minute to create a quick form to get feedback from every child. So that's more efficient than collecting 20 sheets of paper and reading through 20 sheets of paper, but it doesn't mean it's necessarily deep level. So efficiency yeah. certainly can improve time, which then can improve deeper levels of learning. So every few years, what's interesting is the OCED creates these global reports on technology. And every couple of years, they actually get released out of our offices in DC and we give them the space. We don't really partner with them on it. And that every year, every other year, it, it always comes out and says something like this. The headline is always something like, Research shows the more technology that's added to a space, the more learning that doesn't necessarily occur. Like, and I basically just want to write the op-ed next time that just says like, thanks, Captain Obvious, and sends it back in, right? It's like, we could be three to one in a classroom, but if if the pedagogy and the instructional components don't shift into things that are more personal, more authentic, deeper levels, more choice, more voice, like, why would we expect different results? And so we look at those pieces, we have to, I really believe like every dollar we spend comes out of somebody's pocket somewhere. And so we've got the, we have the, the moral obligation to make sure we spend those dollars well. I'm a huge believer in ed tech. I love my technology. I absolutely do. But we, it's not just some little add-on or I found the, this game-changing app at a conference that I got to figure out where it fits. It's boiling it down saying like, what's going to be best for the learning here? And if it's not a technology tool and it's putting the device away and I'm taking out a pencil and paper, well, then that's what we do if that's the best way to learn that. And so we take a look at all those pieces. It's explore, it's design, it's create. And at the, when I flip it over, I would also say that's eerily similar to like, Webb's death of knowledge, Bloom's taxonomy, when we yep. look at the higher levels, because good teaching really is good teaching. Yeah, it'd be interesting, uh, Tom, for, for school districts and, and leaders that are making decisions to spend as much time thinking about explore, design, and create as they do about which ed tech toy they're going to buy. You know, yeah. and, and, and I think it would... Here's an everyday example. I probably go to 50, 50 conferences in a given year, right? I get to speak yeah. in a lot of different places. And so, and, and kudos to those conferences. They're great events. People get to network, they connect. Here's an example I literally see in every state I go. If I were to be doing two sessions, and, and I don't, this isn't me, it's, it's Tom the presenter. Like, let's say same presenter, two different sessions, two different sides of the hallway, same time. On the left side of the hallway, we have 60 apps and 60 minutes. And in the right side of the hallway, we have shifting pedagogy with technology. Here's what you'll see. I would, I would bet my house on it. In the left side, 60 apps in 60 minutes, you will see Act. people like crawling on the floor yeah. to get in. Yes. There's nowhere to sit. Yeah. You walk into the other place, you've got four people sitting in the front row. Because I see it every state. And yeah. That's exactly how it is. And on one hand, like I get that if I'm a teacher in that space, I want something practical. I want something that I can use tomorrow. I want so and I fully understand that. And I'll say there is a spot for people to like be able to be exposed to things just so that they can have an awareness. Like I heard of an app the other day and I was like, Dude, I had no idea something like that even. It was basically an app that you can just scan books and it'll tell you like the exact reading level and you can go through them quickly. And I was like, oh, I never even thought, I'd never knew that existed, right? And so there's a place to, to just an awareness, which is important. 
but let's not kid ourselves and pretend those those sessions change anything when it comes back to shifting stuff in the classroom. And so it's looking at those and making sure, like, if we're not talking about the shifting teaching and learning to really empower kids to to create more authentic experiences, then when we look at those examples, we're really just wasting time. Or the flip side and the negative side of social media is sometimes or, or conferences like that is teachers will easily become overwhelmed being like, man, I've got to be this master of 47 apps in 52 different areas and end up doing nothing well. And that's not at all meant to be condescending to teachers. It's just so easy that, you know, you get overwhelmed as teachers using these 10 things and they're using these 10 things. And I'm looking, I'm only using two apps. And at the end of the day, if that's what we get caught up in, we're totally prioritizing the wrong stuff for my own children. And that's how I look at it. Like if I was to say, what do I want for my own children? I want teachers that are comfortable using the technology that they use. And I would far rather have my, my soon to be first grader, soon to be fifth grader. Um, it's the first time I said that, by the way, that's kind of weird that my two kids, I would far rather their teacher to be really, really comfortable with a couple of tools that are very purposeful that they can use to support their teaching and learning that aren't just your drill and kill that aren't just the same thing 47 times use those things to really impact their learning, not the person that's trying a new app every day of the week just to see how it goes. I love that example that, that you just gave about that conference, uh, you know, the two use on on both sides and that 60 apps in 60 minutes. I think it continues to do what, what you've been explaining. Um, it continues to, to get to the purpose, to get to the why and not just uh, the surface level. I want to shift a little bit. And uh, and talk uh, a little bit about one of your uh, books that you've written, Learning Transformed, Eight Keys to Designing Tomorrow's Schools Today. And this, this book, one of the focuses is on making learning personal for children. Um, can you share a bit more uh, what that means, making learning personal, and, and why is that sure. even important? Sure. Well, it's funny because the um, that was that was two books ago for me, Learning Transformed yeah. was, and my last book is actually called Personal and Authentic, and it's exactly addressing your question. And so when we look at that, it's it really came that part really came from for me when I've talked about learning. I've actually said it not even thinking about that a few times about things being personal, things being authentic in that regard. So when I talk about personal and authentic, especially and, and certainly it kind of stemmed out of learning transformed, which is more of a higher level systems change kind of book. This one really boils down to like a classroom practice of like, what does it mean to make something personal and authentic? Let me yeah. first say what it does not mean. Because when people hear the term personal, and I actually use personal instead of personalized, very purposefully there, there's a tongue twister for you. But I did that <laughs> because sometimes people are associating personalized with I sit behind a device, the device does the teaching and it follows some path from a device and very often little human interaction. That's actually the complete opposite of what I'm talking about. You can be amazingly personal and amazingly authentic. I'll add that there without a single device in a room. And so when I think about it, I actually created this personal and authentic framework after email or emailing, after interviewing um, many, many teachers, many, many principals and superintendents, longtime educators to say, basically your question, how do you make things personal in a classroom? How do you make things authentic? So the way I boiled it down in the framework is to look at things, and I'll go through a bunch of them. One is the social-emotional learning side. It's recognizing the whole child. It's meeting the needs of those that have gone through trauma. It's meeting the needs of those students that don't have any food at home, so we help support them. Because honestly, like if you're not eating at home, who the heck cares about math class, right? And so we take a look at the social-emotional side. It's seeing the whole child and, and understanding that academics, they're just one part of life and loving that kid regardless of where they are there and understanding there's so much more to life and so much more to that child and how complicated it can be and not getting caught up in just our test scores as an example. 
Another area I wrote about is things like cultural responsiveness, cultural relevance. And I actually turned that over to a friend of mine, Dr. Rosa Perez Isaiah. I recognize like when I've talked about cultural relevance, and I've, I've actually mentioned that multiple times, that kind of thing throughout the podcast, I recognize as a white male that grew up in suburbia, like that's not my story to tell. Like I, it's my job to amplify stories of people that have lived it very differently than I asked Rosa, a good friend of mine, to really amplify things around bias and racism and those things there. And, and so when I think about making personal for kids, it's meeting them where they are. It's recognized that if you're standing in front of a classroom or in, you know behind a Zoom now or whatever the case might be, recognizing the differences in our students as beautiful uniqueness and taking a look and recognizing their culture and the, the upbringing, it, it might be completely different than yours, but we've got to respect that, celebrate that, understand that, and not look at that as a negative or not look at that as something that's a uh, something that they're missing in that regard. The deficit mindset in that area is 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 awful, but it's also completely out there. So other areas about like moments of awe, those moments of wonder, you know, those things that happen in classrooms that, you know, like that light bulb goes off, that moment that you can look back or those moments in life that we have that we can still remember years later, like creating those types of moments that are personal. Because a, a moment like that for me that I might have that moment of awe, you might be looking at me like, eh, no big deal. I already knew that. Right. And so that's personal for me, but different for you. And so that's another example. Taking a look at things like students' interests, their passions, their strengths. You know, when we look at the curriculum, we look at a scope and sequence, we look at the things that are assigned. How much do kids get to choose? How much do they get to say, that's the person I want to write about? That's the person I want to read about. Here's an idea that I would like to do versus write your this on this person by this date. And how much do we script and give a recipe versus ask them to explore, ask them to leverage their interests, their passions, their strengths, right? Mm-hmm. Just another one. I, we, we talk about things around authentic feedback. You know, if we were to just to simply, if it was math and all we ever did was just kind of put the score 84% up top, the kids don't learn a lot from that. It's the authentic feedback and helping them understand the process or what they did wrong. Like that's the part that drives it, not the 88%, right? And so when we think about authentic feedback, um, you know, p- uh, pace and path and those kinds of things and allowing students, what does that look like from their pace or to take unique path? It's a lot easier said than done, that's for sure. But we see it happening every day in remote learning with some of the things that are asynchronous. And so we could go on and on and on there. Um, there's ways to do it in the tools we use. There's ways to do it in the spaces that they're in. Um, but and, and there's certainly ways to do it in creating a personal and authentic culture where people want to be. But we take a look. Those are just some of the examples um, related to that. And I appreciate the book shout. I wouldn't give that myself in that regard. Um, but with personal and authentic, there's there's over 50 educators that have said kind of here's an idea. Try this around making things personal. So the advice that I would give is don't forget to open your classroom door walk across the hall, find another amazing teacher and ask them a zillion questions on why they do what they do, how they do it, why they do it that particular way, how they make it personal. Because Tom Murray's got one lens, one set of answers, one way I think. And there's millions of educators out there throughout the world that are really incredible at their craft that have even better responses there as well. I've been thinking about um, a lot about student agency recently, and it it seems like that ties into to what you were talking about there, making learning personal for children, um, is that a correct assumption? And in what ways have you seen uh, student agency important? Yeah, so I almost see them as two sides of the same coin. So like when we make learning personal, that's kind of what we do for them and we give Mm -hmm. them opportunities. We, We set them up for success. The student agency side is then like what they do with it. And so when I, you know, when we set them up and we give them opportunities to stand up for themselves or we give them opportunities to solve problems or we, 
you know, maybe use like a more project based approach on something so that they're solving a problem that they want to solve in their, their community, as opposed to just reading about a problem from 25 years ago. You know, like when we, when we change that, that student agency piece for me at the end of the day is how do I get them to own the learning? So it's something they want to do, not something that they have to do. Yeah, that's really hard. Like as a dad, like I, I, there's been times with both of my kids that I've sat side by side, be like, I know you don't want to, but you're going to, cause I'm dad and I'm going to make you right. Like just being honest, just being real. <laughs> it's watching like my daughter want to pick up a book or watching my son want to do something. How do we promote that? And I will tell you during, and my, my kids, I'll often choke on podcasts and stuff. They are like polar opposites of each other. Right? Like when I look at remote learning, my daughter got up earlier than I did. She was logged in earlier than I even looked at my phone. She's like e emailing teachers, getting back. She was a fourth grader. Like I probably spent in three months, two and a half months, I probably spent 30 minutes on her schoolwork total in that time because she's independent <laughs> she's got it my son like complete opposite of everything that i just said like total chaos right if i'm not sitting next to him side by side it's not happening right or my wife's not you know and so when i look at the agency piece of it right now i mean granted he was a kindergartner and yeah give me give me a kindergartner with student agency and i'll be like all right like let me introduce me to that kid and those parents what does that look like right i get it and part of it's age appropriate but at the end of the day how do we encourage kids how do we make opportunities for kids so that they find the things they're passionate about and they want to do it and they want to make a difference in that area. Because as dad, when I look at it, I want my son and I, at the end, I, I really, I don't care what their like their end of the day, your scores are. My wife is a, is a longtime educator too. And I will tell you, we never one time will talk about test scores at our house ever. And when we take a look at those pieces, I want my kids passionate about a topic, passionate about a cause or passionate about an area, working in their passion to be able to say, here's something, here's a problem I want to fix. Like, I personally feel like I live that every day. I'm passionate about helping kids that didn't have opportunities or don't have opportunities that I had growing up. I want to help fix that for them, right? I want them finding their passions, finding their strengths, working in those areas and having the opportunities there to do so. And so, you know, I think there's, there's many opportunities. I really believe every day that we work with kids is an opportunity to leverage their brilliance, to leverage their voice, to create agency. And if we don't give them voice and we don't have the opportunities for them to choose, yet we expect student agency or we tell them to own their work, like just process that. Like we've got to give them opportunities to do it. If all we ever do is tell them, here's the directions, here's the deadline and here's how to do it. And then we question why they can't do things on the, on, on by themselves. Like, come on, let's look in the mirror. Like if we, if that's what we want, we've got to provide opportunities to do it. Tom. So I'm going to wind down our conversation with more of a reflective question Thinking about what we've talked about and your life experience, what do you think a learning experience looks like that lasts a lifetime? Maybe you could provide an example or a story from your own life to, to maybe inspire our listeners. To me, it's the, the moments that you look back in life with the teacher. And we all have them. Those moments that teacher and and to think about and there's it's, it's i'm trying to quantify it in a handful of sentences and that's what's uh that's what's my current challenge and, and having written an entire book on the topic right <laughs> it's it's those moments as a teacher that we can change the trajectory of a life of a child and i don't say that lightly at all because teachers do that every single day and it's sometimes as those moments where you get a child to finally believe in themselves and then they go 
or those moments where you get the the students over the hurdle and now they're reading better than they ever have like those moments you know and that's just an, an example that happens every single day but the moments that we give kids the opportunity to solve problems that they want to solve that get them ignite that passion that they never ever lose for those moments we turn kids on to learning in the classroom that they then become that next engineer that next musician that next whatever it is because of things that happened in our classroom and so there's a reason that on the cover i used fingerprints and one fingerprints are all personal fingerprints are all authentic and that's part of the reason Part of the reason is to remind educators that their fingerprints of impact really do last for generations because I know what it's like to drive to school on certain days or drive home from certain days and feel ineffective. I know that feeling. I know what it's like to drive home with tears in my eyes to feel like I made the wrong call, that I did the wrong thing, that I, I failed or the observation didn't go well. Like I've been there and I know that feeling. So it's easy to lose sight of the impact that educators have. And so it's to not lose sight of. Uh, opportunity. You see, sometimes I hear educators say, well, now I have to. I was guilty of saying, now I have to. Um, no, you don't. Every one of us can walk away tomorrow if we choose it. You have that right. You can leave tomorrow if you want, but you choose to stay. And so it's not that I have it, it's that I get to. I can. It's I get to have the opportunity to change the lives of kids and the trajectory of kids. And that starts with loving on kids. It starts with creating environments kids want to be. That starts on giving them the opportunity for their interests, their passions, their strengths, seeing the goodness in them, being the stability for them, creating those boundaries and teaching them like we've got boundaries in life and we've got to be careful at keeping them accountable in that regard, but then giving them everything that they can to thrive. And when I think back in my own life, I can think back to so many teachers who raised the bar or who held me accountable or that loved me through a tough time or that coached me on the field at times that... You know, I didn't want to listen because I knew it all because I was a 17-year-old athlete and thought I knew and owned the world, right? But knocked me down and brought me back down to reality, right? And I think those moments are moments that remain a part of you. And I never want educators to lose sight of the impact that they really do have long-term because I know that not every day feels like Thank you for, for saying that. Um, and it's time for the final word. What would you like to say to close out this podcast? I would simply want to remind educators not to forget to take care of themselves. You know, educators on the whole are such giving people, amazing people, such selfless people. You don't get into education to say like, I want the big yacht at the beach house someday. Like that's not why you do what you do. People get into education because they love people. They want to help people. They, they see good. Maybe they love their content and Hey, I want somebody to love their content, but they like people. Right. And so Giving and giving and giving until you have nothing left, which is what educators do, does not mean you run over yourself in the process. So don't feel guilty about it. Don't feel that every Friday you've got to bring your laptop home to check your emails and work all weekend. Do the opposite sometimes. Take that Friday to say, I'm not looking at this until you know 8 o'clock on Monday morning because I'm going to invest in my family this week. I'm not doing this because this weekend I need to reinvest in my spouse because I haven't been present in the past two weeks because I've been so busy at work, whatever it might be. And so many times educators feel guilty about that. Don't feel guilty about that. You need that. Your body needs that and you deserve that. And so, you know, so many times I think about the example I made in personal authentic around self-care. It's like we go to bed every night charging our phone. Like I almost get stressed out when I realize my phone didn't charge overnight, right? But yet how many times do we as educators go weeks, if not months at a time without recharging ourselves? And so you deserve it, but your kids need for you to be in a good spot. So you got to take care of yourself in the process. You have any uh, shout outs you'd like to like to give? Let me give a shout out to my buddy Ken Shelton. So Ken, full disclosure, is one of my best friends. 
Um, Ken lives on the other side of the country that I do. You can follow him on Twitter at K underscore Shelton. Uh, Ken and I do a lot of equity related work together. But the reason I want to give him a shout is he he's taught me a lot. He has a very um, different life experience than I do in many different ways. And there, there's times that I rely on him to push my thinking, to take my own blinders off. And he does incredible work in that area. If you're a school or district leader, he's the kind of person you want to bring into your district so that he can work alongside your staff to challenge your thinking. But uh, overall, he's just an amazing person. So I'll give Ken a shout. Tom, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on Diving Deep EDU. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your insight. And to those listening, thank you for tuning in to Diving Deep EDU. If you like this episode, subscribe, share it out, post a review on Apple Podcasts. All of those things will help get this podcast out to more people. Until next time. Wow, it's time to reflect. That's astounding. You've been checking out the podcast from Matthew Downing. Hope you like diving deep like a scuba diver. And the show provoked hope. That's our true desire.